This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Did you know that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some entire countries? Bitcoin has a massive network of miners called ASICs that require a lot of energy to mine and secure the Bitcoin network. So for Bitcoin to be successful, it's critical to have access to cheap and reliable energy. That's why miners are moving in flocks to Texas and running their mining operations off of natural gas wells, wind turbines, solar farms, and on-grid applications. But up to now, there hasn't been a place for Bitcoin miners and energy producers to connect with each other. That's why Digital Wildcatters is bringing everyone to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, for two days of network and learning at the premier mining event and power. Maybe you're an experienced miner or energy producer that's looking for partnerships, or maybe you're new to the space and you want to learn and get your foot in the door. There's going to be content and opportunities for people from all different backgrounds. March 30th, the 31st, Houston, Texas, and power. Get more information at digitalwildcatters.com. What's up, Wildcatter Nation? Welcome back to another episode. It's so funny. Con and I are very, it seems like lately we're just taking turns. He's on one episode, I'm on the other episode, but you know what it works out. We've got my buddy Spencer Randall from Crypto EQ here. We were just talking about how like you're stepping back into the canon. You guys were like one of the founding members of well, it's not really the canon anymore. This is like the this is the OG canon, right? This yeah. is the the waiting room was the, yeah. you know, the original branding. Yeah, we started in a closet down the hall. It was literally like so this place was jam-packed and it was like in the heyday of the canon when it first started off. There was just like startups everywhere doing really cool stuff. The common areas were jam-packed. People were playing ping pong. There's people always in the kitchen. Like everywhere you went, you were bumping into like innovative founders who were like tackling really big ideas. So we were like, we definitely want to be here because we had office to like WeWork back in the day. But what we found with WeWork as cool as like the aesthetics were, that it was a whole lot of like tax attorneys, lawyers. Very corporate. Like very much like, yeah, corporate yeah. feeling. It wasn't like the founders. And then we came here and we're like, this is grungy. These are founders. And we're like, give me whatever you have. And they're like, we have this closet. It's a storage closet. <laughs> has no windows. I'll give it to you for like $600 a month. And we said, we'll take it. And so that's like where Wildcat was kind of born. Um, so it's cool yeah. that it's cool that we're. That, that resonates with me because like Allure for us was at the time we were moonlighting and weekending to build Crypto EQ, to build our venture, to build our passion project and the last thing we wanted to do was like leave the office or come in on the weekend and feel like it was corporate mm -hmm. so we wanted a completely different feeling and uh the energy at the canon campus was much like the energy i felt at university yeah everyone was curious everyone was excited and everyone was building and that uh that was fun yeah. do you feel and this is like no shade on the canon if anybody's listening but do you feel like that transferred over to the to that new building across the street it's a lot it's a lot more polished i will say yeah. that and so it attracts a different kind of entrepreneur yeah i camped out there yeah. so whenever we came here before we officially like signed the, the agreement i was camped out there for call it two months in the main building just kind of hanging out in the common areas and stuff and it seemed like whereas here everybody was out and kind of like mingling and, and you go over to like the the main building and it's like everybody kind of just stayed in their offices and it's like the common there's like nobody in the common areas yeah like nobody really knew anybody anymore like it wasn't like as close-knit and so I, I just found that that was kind of interesting that by moving into a bigger space with more polish like what it kind of facilitated more yeah people kind of kept their offices yeah, yeah. I, I i don't like offices at all um so i'm always out in the open space yeah or in the library yeah the, the main building so and this episode is going to be like way different. Yeah. So if you're listening, this is probably not gonna be like a traditional episode. Spencer and I were just chatting before we got on the mic, like, Hey, what are we, what, what do we want to talk about? And I think that you know, we've done a whole lot of episodes around like Bitcoin mining and stuff. And, and Spencer's a, a huge kind of crypto guy. Uh, also understand how it kind of plays to energy, but I think we're just kind of going to go down some rabbit holes today. This is going to be more of like a Joe Rogan episode. Right. Sure. And so we're just going to go down a whole lot of rabbit holes and talk about all things crypto how that pertains to energy. So if that's something you're interested in, definitely stay on. This is what we're going to get into. Uh, if you're looking for more of a traditional episode, you know, we'll catch you on the next one. So Spencer, real quick, before we get into it, just give some context. Like what, what is Crypto EQ? How long ago did you guys start? What do you guys do? Yeah. So we started building a community around crypto. This was before we knew what Crypto EQ could be or would be um, in Houston. Mm -hmm. So uh, the founding 
kind of mission was rallying people around learning about digital assets, learning about things like Bitcoin. And uh, I was going to all kinds of community events in Houston, Austin, San Antonio, uh, all around Texas, and at some points, even the country to meet really smart people that wanted to learn about crypto. And from there, I invited them to what we were doing in Houston and built out a community with my team. What year was this? This was 2017. Okay. Early 2017 is when I had you know, kind of that moment that I think a lot of people that invest in crypto have where you really started listening. 2017 was a big year. You got to think like that was the year that um, ICO, so initial coin offerings, got a lot of steam, yep. right? And I feel like this whole NFT push is very much what ICOs were in 2017. I think yep. you have you know, 2% are really, really great projects and the other 98% are absolutely garbage as with anything with like tons and tons of hype. And so, yeah, 2017 was a time where you got to think that like Bitcoin made some big jumps, Ethereum made some big jumps. I feel like that that's when people really started to kind of take it seriously as opposed to before it was very much like this underground hacker culture thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, so in 2017, especially early 2017, it was very much an alternative investment uh, and still had a lot of momentum around it being nefarious uh, and you know something that you know, Bitcoin and things like it were cause for concern, may not be legitimate. Uh, so that we started building in that dark period um, and there was a lot of excitement in 2017. Uh, we started building this community and around you know 20, late 2017, early 2018, right, the market topped. And the exuberance and speculation washed out. And at that point in the community, I could see, you know, when the tide went out, who was really serious about this investment, this technology, this asset class, and who would be interested in building a company within this industry. And that's how I met my partners. And so in 2018, when everything was quiet, we started building uh, the product. It, you know, you talk about um, the grungy closet, right? And, and kind of building in the dark. Well, the, for us, we built in the dark of the bear market. And one of the things that I think would resonate with a lot of people that have watched oil and gas for decades and you know, invest a lot of their lives in oil and gas is crypto is, is very volatile as well. And uh, so you have your, your bear markets, you have your dark periods, and that's when, if you really have conviction, you double down and you build. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's exactly what we did. And so we built this, this platform to scale up what we were doing in our community in Houston so that we could help the world and we could help people all around the world learn about digital assets. And so CryptoEQ is founded, built, and maintained by our, our co-founders to provide independent research and market insights. And so we see billions of people onboarding to digital assets over mm -hmm. the next few decades, and we're helping people navigate that process because we know this industry is messy, complicated, hard to understand. We've lived that, we've walked that line, and we want to help people make it easier. So we built a product we wish we would have had in 2017. So what is it? Is, are there any kind of products that are comparable that, to that, like say in like the stock space? Yeah, we, we brand ourselves as the North Star of crypto. So a guiding okay. light, somebody that can help you guide, uh, guide you along your crypto journey. Uh, some people have dubbed us the Morning Star of crypto, which I do think is an apt comparison uh, because of how methodical our research process is. You, know, you mentioned how fleeting some of these projects can be. Right, maybe 1% of the mm -hmm. NFT market or 1% of newly launched projects actually are going to solve any kind of real problems and actually de deliver something to the market. And so we take a very methodical approach to identifying that 1% uh, that, that is quality, that is here to change the world, that is you know, potentially something that uh, is a protocol that will be here for decades. What was, your, what was your background, just real quick, before we get into yeah, the yeah. rabbit holes? Yeah, so... Uh, engineer. So okay. I, uh, I studied at Rice, uh, graduated in 13 with a mechanical engineering degree and, uh, spent about six years in industry. I got my professional engineering license. I put in all that work to climb, you know, the kind of the pinnacle of engineering, which is to be a licensed engineer. And when I got up to the top of that mountain, I looked around and I was like, I don't see myself doing this for 20 more years or 30 more yeah. years. And just got real honest with myself. And like, once I'd achieved that, that big goal that I set for myself, I started to think about entrepreneurship and building something. And I had already, you know, in 2019, I was already a couple of years down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And uh, at that point, it wasn't really a choice. It was more like a calling. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd, I'd learned a lot uh, about other digital assets and 
develop systems with the team to trade and invest in crypto. And at that point, uh, shortly after earning my license, I went full time on Crypto EQ. What do you? What is like Bitcoin? Like, what is like? What is your thesis? Like, what is the the importance of Bitcoin? And and maybe what is the importance of Bitcoin? Say in kind of our daily lives, as, as more and more things like I'm kind of holding more over time. I'm trying to hold more crypto than I am dollars. Like that's something yeah. that I wouldn't have imagined doing a few, even a few years ago. What do you think is the importance of say? And it could maybe something beyond Bitcoin, but Bitcoin, crypto, all of this in general, Web3, what's the importance of that over the next like five to 10 years? And like kind of what's, what's your thesis? How do you think about this? Yeah, my, my entry point was um, before I invested in Bitcoin, I was a precious metals investor. So I bought mm. my first ounce of gold when I was 10 years old. And I would not have done that without the influence of my uncle, who's a gold bug. Um, and so my late uncle, uh, from a very young age, taught me the principles of sound money. Um, why gold is a responsible thing to allocate to, uh, if not as an investment, as an insurance policy uh, for your, your wealth. Uh, and so being the type of person that bought gold young, uh, that's the thesis that I built around Bitcoin early 2017 for myself was this is digital gold. This is gold 2.0. And this is going to change the world. And so that's why I started buying Bitcoin. Uh, and now in, in 2021, going into 2022, one of the really exciting things is you don't even have to buy Bitcoin anymore. I mean, you can turn energy assets into Bitcoin. You can earn Bitcoin as yield. Uh, you can convert your your airline credit card points program into a Bitcoin back rewards program. That's what we do. Yeah. I think so, all of our credit card report uh, rewards are yeah. literally just, we have a partnership with Coinbase. We convert it into Bitcoin. It's, it's certainly, you know, we don't have to talk about investments. It's certainly more risky to hold any kind of value in a company's reward program than mm -hmm. it is to hold a reward program in Bitcoin. It's, yeah. it's a, so you don't even have to take any of your disposable income and invest. You can now earn Bitcoin passively through all of these wonderful options that have come online in the form of service providers. But it's so much more, it's so much easier to gain exposure to things like Bitcoin in 2021 than it was you know, four or five years ago. Um, it's a, you know, like, like what we're doing, we're making it easier to learn about crypto because there's companies making it easier to gain exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just encourage uh, anyone that's you know, still on the fence to experiment uh, with some of these options that have come online. Uh, and Bitcoin is the most responsible, uh, best place to start when it comes to crypto. Why are you so bullish on Bitcoin specifically? It's the most secure. Uh, it's immutable. It's censorship resistant. Uh, it is the one protocol that we've developed that truly had a fair launch. And when I say we, I mean the industry. It's, it's the one protocol that, that has come out of the crypto industry that um, is sufficiently decentralized, um, has proven to be immutable, has uh, weathered all of these attacks, forks, uh, without any real cause for concern. I mean, there's never been a point in Bitcoin Network's history where I was concerned for the network. Uh, the uptime is fantastic. Um, so there's really no other protocol that I think holds a candle to Bitcoin's security and censorship resistance. Now, once we jump out of the sound money use case, I think there's great conversations to be had about utility around other assets. But if we're talking about sound money, there's no, there's no comparison. Bitcoin is, has closed the door on the competition there. And as someone that stared at this for five years, I, I say that very confidently. It seems like the days of like rapid uh, volatility in the crypto markets compared to where it was before is maybe behind us. What do you think? The rapid volatility of, of the coal of, industry? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't seen data to support that we, we wouldn't experience a large drawdown mm -hmm. uh, in the next one to two years. Um, personally, I'm prepared uh, for as severe of drawdowns as we've seen in previous cycles. Um, I was buying into this kind of dampened market cycle narrative with um, all of the institutional capital that we saw flowing into the market. Uh, but the summer showed us that 15, 60% drawdowns still are on the table. Um, historically, we've seen 80% drawdowns. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, my personal target, uh, if the market cycle plays out the way I think, we could incur a 70% drawdown from the top of this cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's my personal planning. That's not financial advice. 
but that's that's how I see it from staring at this. So for somebody who's like kind of new to this, right? It's it's somebody who's completely new to Bitcoin. And, you know, we kind of preface the conversation with Bitcoin is kind of like digital gold. And we're talking about a potential 70% drawdown. And they're saying, well, how is this digital gold, right? What's your, what's your kind of rebuttal to that? Well, I mean, we're talking about two, three, four decades at a time. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the gold chart, I've traded gold, I've invested in gold. That's a very volatile chart as well, especially mm-hmm. if you go back three decades. So, I mean, you're seeing something transformational happen. And uh, if you're buying Bitcoin as an investment and you ought not think about it one, two, three years at a time, you're thinking about investing what you can lose in something that is changing the world, is here to stay, and is the soundest money on earth. And so if you're, if you're taking that thesis, then um, I think thinking about it 10, 20, 30 years at a time is the more responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Do you have a certain price target for, say, Bitcoin in the next couple of years? Well, my personal- Not investment advice? But- yeah, not investment advice. My personal financial planning is, uh, I, do, I am more conservative for a crypto investor. Um, Six-figure Bitcoin, for me, is a, a great time to lock in profits on all other assets that I hold. Um, and I, you know, I'm locking in profits on the way up. Um, personally, you know, at six-figure Bitcoin, $100,000 Bitcoin, um, for me, for this market cycle, that's nearing the point where it could be so much volatility to the upside that the difficulty around timing the top, um, it, it takes a tremendous amount of skill, some luck, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not in the game of trying to time an exact top as a trader. Uh, so if, when I see six-figure Bitcoin, to me, that's, uh, we're coming close to the end of the market cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, so outside of Bitcoin, we're talking about digital assets as a whole. Like what else, what else are you super bullish about? Is it Ethereum? Is it Solano? Is it Cardano? Is it? Yeah. I, I'm interested in a lot of different protocols. Uh, it, it come down to the use case. Um, and so you know, personally, I'm really interested in what's called GameFi or the intersection of gaming and finance. And for that sector of crypto, uh, what, what, why, why, why does GameFi exist? Um, the problem that it's solving is it's empowering gamers around the world, which that's a massive market, to monetize their efforts in-game directly. So with the rise of things like Twitch, it's become much more profitable to be a gamer. It's become much more sustainable to be a gamer as a vocation, as a job, as an entrepreneur. And so GameFi is empowering you as a gamer, not only to monetize on the attention that others would give you as you watch people play games, um, but monetize what you're building in game or what you earn in game in a marketplace uh, that's associated with the game. So there's, there's these days of you build a, a, a World of Warcraft character or a Second Life character up and then sell that on a secondary market to someone else and violate the terms of service. You know, that validates the market need, but we don't have to do that anymore as gamers. Gamers can build up assets, take them to a marketplace, it's very liquid, and turn it into value that they could do whatever they want with. And, mm-hmm. and that can be in the form of stable coins. Um, that could be in the form of, of protocols like Ethereum. Um, but when you, when you talk about GameFi, Ethereum um, is really the infrastructure that's making a lot of these games possible and making it possible for other gamers around the world to live off of their blockchain games. It's crazy to think about, because especially as a kid coming out playing video games, and you know, you're playing video games for hours on end. Your parents are like, you're never going to make money playing video games. Why do you waste all your time doing this? And yet now there's kids who make really, really good livings. Uh, with this ninja guy makes like, what, like $20 million a year or something like that. Just streaming him playing games yeah. on like Twitch. Yeah. Which was such a weird concept to me at first when I first learned about that. My, my youngest brother, who's like 23, was really into the gaming world. And he was talking about, oh, like I would just watch these people on Twitch. And I'm like... I didn't understand why you would ever watch somebody play a video game, but it's like a, it's a huge thing. Yeah. So I, I joke that I lost friends to world of Warcraft. So I go back to that one a lot because I lived that. So I have, I have a friend and they get sucked into world of Warcraft and you know, we couldn't go play basketball anymore because they had to play wow. They had mm-hmm. to play world of Warcraft. They had to build up their character. So they, you know, it, it's kind of an addiction, right? And gaming is very addictive. Making money is very addictive. And, so these worlds are colliding now in GameFi. You, you have fun playing a game. You make money playing a game. And 
you don't necessarily have to monetize on attention or even be in the top 1% of skilled gamers to earn a living. Mm-hmm. And it, that's, it's pretty incredible to think that these games are developing their own economies, their own marketplaces, they're very liquid, and you can, you know, take what you build in game in the form of NFTs, you know, it does tie into NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and, and liquidate those NFTs as you like, uh, and earn, you know, Ethereum or some other token. So what are your thoughts on, stretch where we want to go there's a lot of different rabbit holes that we can go down yeah um, game, game five is a big one let's go back to what you guys do because i think that yeah. can just kind of see the conversation how do you guys educate the public or your potential or your customers on uh, on the crypto is it, are you guys writing articles are you guys putting out content like walk me through that as analytics yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of different ways we serve um the crypto industry um for the investor persona, that's the most popular persona that uses our web app. Um, they can hop on CryptoEQ.io and read methodical research and reports on different crypto assets. So we have what's called core reports, um, the truncated free version of the core reports. We call them our abridged core reports. Tend to be about ten to twenty pages of research that follows a ten-point framework. We call that our core rating framework. And we run every asset that we list through this framework. So 10 to 20 pages of free research for 90 plus percent of the crypto market by market cap is our core offering to the industry. And that's How often do you release those? It's thousands of hours of research and we release a new rating on a monthly cadence. Okay. Right. So at this point, being operational for three years, uh, we release dozens of these core ports um, and update them regularly as, as things change. Um, so that's that's the core offering. Um, and then on on top of that, we build other products. So we help traders with signals. So we help people find excellent entry and exit points um, for swing trading, for day trading, or uh, for long-term investing, depending on your, your time preference, your time horizon. Um, we also are doing things with partner organizations. So a great one is uh, the Texas Blockchain Council. Mm-hmm. That's really tangible, uh, really uh, easy to, for folks to wrap their head around. Uh, we're building a starter pack for them. So Texas Blockchain Council is doing a heck of a job uh, in Texas, raising awareness around Bitcoin and things like it, and specifically working on being a liaison between regulators and uh, crypto. So helping educate regulators and people that are making policy uh, with the facts uh, of Bitcoin and, and crypto. Which, um, you know, unfortunately, the, reg- the regulatory, the regulatory uh, framework and, and what we're doing in the United States and regulators and policymakers are catching up. Um, and there's a lot of negative momentum we have to overcome as an industry. And the Texas Blockchain Council is helping do that. So we're partnering with them to develop a starter pack so that everyone that walks in the door at a Texas Blockchain Council event has some responsible uh, first steps mm-hmm. as they educate themselves, as they learn more about crypto on how to do this the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's another example of, of a product that's more of a, a one-off that we, we'd like to develop more things like for partner organizations. So let's dive into, I, I, was, I just want to talk about NFTs because I think there's a yeah. lot of applications yeah. <clears throat> for NFTs. There's something that we're looking at, like how do we, now that we've got like a really engaged community, uh, you know, across the Wildcatter community, how do we deploy NFTs? I think there's also a lot of instances where the industry could actually use nfts a couple different ideas that i've had over the years for blockchain and i think it didn't necessarily make sense with some of the early iterations but i think it makes sense it's an nft what do you what are you what is your kind of thesis on nfts like like i said i think that most projects out there are completely garbage right and i think that you have same with ICOs, and i think you have a small percentage of nfts that are really interesting projects and i think that it's interesting that it's kind of made its way into kind of pop culture through art, through profile pictures and stuff. But I think that there's so much utility that can be built into an NFT. And I think eventually my thesis is like the mundane will be NFTs. I think that your driver's license, your passport, the um, you know deed to your house, your title to your car, I feel like those can all be NFTs that can instantly be 
transferred, like you could transfer ownership instantly to anybody on any kind of secondary market. Um, but like before we get there, like what is that? What is that kind of horizon? Like what are the various iterations that NFTs take? Yeah, yeah. Some history it would be fun to start with. So some of the first NFTs were actually on the Bitcoin network, right? So that, that's a nod to, to Bitcoin as an OG crypto. Um, and then a lot's happened since then. So, you know, a lot of the NFT market now trades atop the Ethereum infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But whether it's uh, the Ethereum protocol, Bitcoin as a protocol, or some other layer one, um, NFTs as an idea make a lot of sense. Non-fungible tokens, they're unique. They can be a one of one or they can be a one of a thousand, but they're scarce. And so the, the same reason Bitcoin makes sense is an alternative investment and a hedge and sound money. This idea of a scarce digital asset in the form of an NFT makes a lot of sense. Um, personally, I have been pretty hands-off on NFTs mm -hmm. because of all the exuberance. I mean, as you said, right, 1% of projects, maybe, if that, will matter. And whether it's an ICO, an IDO, or an IEO, or an NFT, so much speculation, so much exuberance, I was hands-off. And it really didn't click for me as a use case for art and art investing. Uh, and I, I did not allocate. Um, but for gaming and NFTs around gaming, I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for six months, I've been investing in, in GameFi-related NFTs. Um, but this this idea of a scarce digital asset, I think, is is very exciting. And I think that a lot of the use cases you mentioned, whether it's your driver's license, your voter ID card, uh, will a lot of a lot of these things will exist on a blockchain infrastructure layer one with time. It's just going to take us a long time. Uh, as a society to migrate in that direction. And that's why it's important for us to educate the public responsibly on what an is and is not a quality, a protocol and quality digital asset. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Combo Curve. If you haven't heard, Aries and PhD went around and Combo Curve is in. Combo Curve is the cloud-based operating system for energy companies. The single integrated platform helps your engineering teams become more agile, precise, and efficient than ever before. For the first time ever, you now generate type curves and forecast thousands of wells accurately and in a fraction of the time. Oh, and it can automatically run these forecasts every single day. What I love most about the Combo Curve team is their work ethic and actually caring about their customers. Every time I talk to the team, Armand, Jeremy, everybody else over there, they're reinvesting into growing the development team to tackle any challenges that their clients may be facing. But don't take my word for it. Go over to combocurve.com, read the dozens of testimonials on their website from clients like Arm Energy, Laredo Petroleum, Rock and W Minerals, and many more. Request a demo, and these guys will get you taken care of. I think it's, yeah, I think it's so hard to tell. I think there's a couple different, like, from, from my perspective of kind of diving into it. I think whenever you have a situation where there's a ton of hype and there's a lot of money being thrown around, you naturally have a lot of projects that are cash grabs. It was no different in the ICO space. And so the projects that stick out to me are kind of, there's very, oh, there's a few. Um, I think that the, the board API club did a great job in terms of like, it started off as this art of like these 8,000 different apes or whatever. Yeah. And then they very quickly built like five or six product lines on the back of this community. And they were able to do that with essentially the royalties from the transactions on that. And so bringing people together in this community of like, hey, you bought your, your NFT, which is essentially like a ticket into this club, right? And think about, I think about this a lot in terms of clubs and communities and stuff. And like traditionally you have, you know, country clubs, you have like the petroleum club, you have things like that, that are like very much like old world. And now this is kind of like this new age club of like, they literally got people together in New York for like a two or three day event, you know, and people were actually able to make like real life connections. And now there are people are talking on Telegram and Discord and all that kind of stuff, Twitter, right? And real life kind of connections and things are coming out of that. I think it's it's a different way to bring communities together. Absolutely. In the same way that like our generation kind of got together through like AOL Instant Messenger, and then you kind of evolved into like MySpace, but then that was still kind of like your friends. And then Facebook was still also like people that you already knew. And then I think Twitter was like the first time where it was like, you're not necessarily limited to people that you grew up with. And you're kind of, you find new tribes 
based on things that you're interested in, I think NFTs in this capacity kind of take that to an entirely new level. Yeah, whether it's the digital wildcatters audience, the crypto EQ audience, I mean, we all started as a community. Yeah. You know, so this idea of of a non-fungible token for specific communities is very exciting. You know, the Board 8 Yacht Club is is you know, one of the most uh is one of the most valuable NFTs and, and it's highly traded. You know, CryptoPunks are another good example. But let, let's uh give an example of something that you know wasn't great for the industry. Like um for in the podcast audience, the Pauls, right? What they did with the uh the stock Adobe stock photos, you know, they they created some art, um, some NFT art based on Adobe stock photos, and it was like a simple Photoshop. You know, it's mm. not it's not uh pure art. I mean it's not purely creative. It's uh, copy paste and some Photoshop. That got ripped apart. I mean, it's mm-hmm. that's not that's not a good project for NFT culture. It's just to just, you know touch up some some Adobe stock photos and mm-hmm. slap your brand on it and deliver that to your community. I'd say you're at that point you're doing a disservice to your community. Yeah. Um, so there's there's the one percent projects that are generative art that are creative um, from scratch, and then there's you know. A lot of fugazis, a lot of knockoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting projects that I've watched over time. Huge fan of Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Um, he's been talking about NFTs for a while. He's been talking about blockchain for a while. Um, I think a lot of times he was talking about it behind the scenes, as we kind of know now. He's he's come out and said that hey, I was talking to you know a lot of these big names, the Paul brothers, the uh, the Mr. Beast of the world all these celebrities and stuff that he talks to on his podcast. He's been talking with the NFTs with them for for years now, and he's kind of just sort of come out talking about them publicly. But he launched this V Friends projects where he started kind of just drawing these little critters, right? And then kind of coming up with something, and then he NFT'd those. And I was like, I don't think that... My first thought was like, I don't think this is going to work, right? Lesson to be learned here, don't underestimate Gary V because he made $91 million in 30 days. Right. And so it's absolutely wild what he was able to do with that. But he also built in a ton of utility. I think that being one of the the major differentiators between shit projects and good projects was that those are now entry tickets to VCon, right? Yeah. Which is his big conference. Right. So yeah. you think about, okay, you pay, let's just call it maybe two thousand dollars for this NFT. You can, you know take this to the secondary market but also now if you're a holder you get access to vcon which is only limited to other holders of these assets right yeah and so now imagine you go and then he's like well yeah we're having another one next year you're going to be out of the country or something you can't go maybe the price of these goes up and you're able to take that ticket now yeah and resell that on the market that's interesting that's a really really interesting concept or like how do you build utility and value for that community whereas like you go to a tradition like just say you go to sarah week that's a great example you spend nine thousand dollars on a ticket to go to sarah week right and then you never get anything else out of that again yeah whereas now you can take that ticket that experience they have it every single year what if you could take that and resell them in the secondary market yeah so we're seeing a lot of that in the virtual world metaverse space Mm-hmm. Uh, so these progressive communities, whether it's V friends and what they're doing with NFTs or some of these other ideas, uh, the ticket, the NFT, uh, is giving you not only an exclusive experience, but benefits thereafter. Um, so, uh, examples of, of what could happen if you're holding a ticket for, you know, a, a, an exclusive event, uh, in a virtual world, a metaverse, a game, um, you could be eligible for drops, right? So, you know, Let's talk about the digital wildcatters communities. I mean, the digital wildcatters community has uh, some kind of NFT distribution. Well, when y'all want to do some giveaways, all of a sudden it becomes way easier to distribute and identify you know, who those value. I mean, you value everyone in your community, but those valued members of this event or that event, and uh, it, it eases the distribution of you know, some of these these giveaways and some of these things that you want to do for your community to show them how much you care. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what's happening in these different gaming ecosystems, these different metaverses. Um, you could even call you know what Gary's done. It, some of it does feel kind of like a metaverse. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's he's so you can say whatever you want, but he's extremely progressive. He's seen a lot of things before they happen, and he's he's getting a lot of things right. Have you seen any other cool projects like that that you thought were kind of like very unique ones that have a lot of legs? One that's like 
there's a, a unique way of adding utility to a project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what brought me into the NFT space, you know, I was hands off for a long time. For a long time, I would only accept um, NFTs as gifts. I wouldn't buy them. Um, my entry point was seeing that you could own these gaming assets and generate yield on top of the NFT. So now I'm no longer passively holding an NFT as an investment. I have a yield bearing asset that I can hold in a portfolio securely that generates passive income streams on top of the underlying and, asset. And my assumption would be that the yield is from transaction fees of people trading those assets. Those are pulled together and then paid out essentially as a dividend, right? There's, there's a lot of ways to generate yield on NFTs. Um, there are platforms where you can lend your NFTs. Mm -hmm. um, that could be in a broader marketplace, like renting your NFTs, or um, that could be in the form of like a gaming scholarship program uh, in the sense that you put up these assets for other people to use as in-game characters or, or leverage in-game in some capacity. Um, or uh, the, certain games allow you to use NFTs as really like pieces on a chessboard, pieces on a, a board game, pieces in-game. And they give you rights to earn and play to earn uh, mm. in the game. Mm. So whether it's you know an exclusive giveaway or the right to play to earn in an ecosystem, um, the NFTs are unlocking additional benefits. And in that example, it's in the form of yield. Mm -hmm. So th there's a lot of different ways it could go in terms of dividends, interest, yield on on the underlying asset. I had an idea. Um, shit, it was years ago. So backstory my entry point into the industry was through uh building software for for emps right and so really tackling this data problem in upstream kind of head on and that was my focus coming into this industry for probably five years the first five years that i came in and so you always think about what is the handoff of assets as you're either buying new assets or you're divesting some assets between oil companies and one of the biggest issues is that, for one, none of the data is standardized in any sort of format. Um, there's a lot of quality issues. How much is the truth, right? And so with blockchain, I was like, you know, it'd be amazing if you could literally have this immutable ledger of all of the well data, right? But I think as an NFT, it makes the most sense, right? It's where you can have these individual wells, where each one of them is an NFT, if you were to kind of create some sort of standardization in the way that data was captured to where you now know exactly this is this, you know, and there's no like room for interpretation anymore. Right. Yeah. So you go through and do the verification. And now whenever you're, you know, trade like assets could trade hands so freely and you know, kind of like what's what, like that's the data problem in oil and gas is one of the biggest issues um, still today. And I see that as being like this massive undertaking, but is that realistic? I just thought it was an interesting idea to to know what is the actual real data. So whenever you're actually buying assets, you're like, oh shit, I know what I have. Yeah, whether whether it's a company's treasury or you know your own transactions or oil and gas data, this idea of a, an open ledger uh, is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And and blockchain specifically is the technology that unlocks this opportunity for a lot of different assets and a lot of different industries. Mm -hmm. So we had a oil and gas CEO. I'm not going to say who it is, but I want to surprise you guys. Um, <laughs> he came to us recently and he was just like, I want to position our company for the metaverse. And I was like, holy shit, you're probably the only person thinking about that. So we're actually going to start <laughs> releasing uh, a lot of content with this company of very much like what, what D-Rock and Gary V did with the daily Vs, yeah. now weekly Vs. Uh, we're going to be doing that with an oil and gas company uh, coming here soon and creating a show once a week, releasing these new episodes. Uh, so it's be really cool, kind of behind the scenes. Our most popular content still to this day was like whenever we were buying our wells in Oklahoma, we did our first work over, like that was the start of digital wildcatters. <laughs> and so it's going to be really cool to kind of show behind the scenes. But how do you think about the metaverse? Because there's a lot of different interpretations, right? There's, yeah. you've got Facebook rebranding as uh, meta. meta now, yeah. right? And there's some of these conversations are very much focused around virtual reality or augmented reality or entire 
you know, virtual worlds, you've got Decentraland, you've got some of these other places where you're buying kind of virtual plots of land. But you've got this other side of the argument where it was like the metaverse is more so a time rather than a digital place. And that kind of resonated with me recently when I got my notification on my phone for how much time I spend on my phone daily. I get those like every single week and it was like, oh, you were up or down so many hours. And I realized that I was on my phone seven hours a day and I'm sitting here thinking about my total attention span that I have when I'm awake. And I'm like, I spend more time looking at digital made up fairy screens right through computers and phones and everything than I do interacting in the entire world or the physical world. So wouldn't that technically kind of be like the metaverse, right? Yeah. I I think it's a continuation of what's already happening. And I think you you mentioned screen time. So, So the metaverse kind of unlocks you from fixation and focal points on a screen and you're, you're more so stepping into the internet. And so I would argue that a lot of people that are listening to this uh, already are uh, integrated with the internet and are probably addicted to a one or more devices. And if you don't believe me, try going a day without a phone. It almost feels like you're missing a piece of yourself mm-hmm. as you're missing your connection, the tool for a lot of the connection to your loved ones, your family, your friends. Um, so I, I see it as a continuation of, of what already has been happening. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can go when you talk about a metaverse. Uh, for me, what what really clicks as somebody that you know was a gamer uh, is not a gamer anymore. Um, but there, there's a period of my life where I played a game for hours every single day for a year, and stepping into that experience with VR, with AR, and really living it is really exciting. Um, so being a more immersive experience in entertainment, whether it's a game or a movie, you know, our, our surround sound systems and our screens keep getting bigger and better. Mm. So, so why not put on a headset and feel like you really are in the action? And so why, why, why not have a more immersive game or, or movie experience? And then from there, why not have a more immersive virtual experience as you uh, work remotely or talk to, to friends and family on the other side of the world? I think, I think it's very exciting and I'm open to the innovation that we're seeing. I think what's strange for me was that the NFTs entered pop culture and then it was like almost immediately overnight, this idea of the metaverse also entered pop culture. Cause I think those two are kind of intertwined in a bit and then Facebook rebranding and like, why, like, what do you, like, what do you think was kind of like the catalyst for that? Was it NFTs? Was it something else? Because in my mind, I have not been thinking about, and I understand that I feel like I'm becoming like the old person now. Cause like, I know like, <laughs> I know like AR and VR and stuff has been a thing for a while. And I actually found some surprising data the other day that Oculus headsets have sold like more than ever. Like those continue to go up. Right. But it's not necessarily something that's been on my radar. Like we've made like these massive leaps and kind of innovation to where it's like something that we should be like paying attention to. So when the metaverse like literally came out of nowhere for like the public conversation, it kind of shocked me a little bit. So what do you think was like the catalyst for that? And then kind of like a secondary question is like, I feel like possibly this iteration, very similar to how we just kind of got to NFTs and we went through ICOs and STOs and we went through a lot of different versions. I feel like possibly my, my opinion of this is that maybe this version of the metaverse is not really what ultimately it's going to be, but this is like the first kind of like way it kind of gets introduced into pop culture and the main metaverse that really gets adopted looks completely different, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It, it's been, you know, I think, I think it was uh, someone at Enchain Capital, maybe it was Parker Lewis that coined the term "gradually then suddenly." I know you wrote a piece that is titled "Gradually then suddenly," and that that definitely is apt for Bitcoin. And it kind of feels like the metaverse has been gradual, and now it's all of a sudden with Meta's you know keynote, it's here. I mean, it, it, it's so. I think an important thing to say about Meta is, you know, that wasn't a, a flippant decision. They've been building product for years to supplement the metaverse and so this idea of moving from the meat space to the virtual world or metaverse fluidly is enabled by a product um oculus as you mentioned is a product that's in the oculus oculus 2 
as you said, you know, has has been doing well, is a product that keeps getting better. Um, and as product uh, gets better to I mean, support just twenty two billion dollars in R and D a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it should be getting better. So the I mean, as someone that's, that's practiced with a headset, used a headset, the some of the things that are working on is this feeling of of being disoriented. Um, the weight. I've heard a lot of people complain about the weight of headsets, and that's all getting better. And I think that more and more R and D, you know, more and more burn on that side, the product will continue to improve, and it'll feel more fluid and yeah, you know, like people that wear eyeglasses. I mean, it, after wearing eyeglasses for a while, you don't even notice. Yeah. And um, I think that headsets, uh, the innovation with headsets will get to the point where it's it's not uncomfortable to wear a headset. And from there, you know, it's more straightforward and easier to jump in and, yeah. and have some fun in a virtual world. Let's let's take the obvious. COVID obviously changed the way that we all work. And going from being in the office to kind of working from home for a lot of people to people are realizing that they still need better ways to collaborate. And it's kind of hard to, to recreate that, say, via Zoom, but enter Metaverse, enter VR of now we're able to, like remote teams are able to collaborate on something just like you would in person is extremely powerful. Bill Gates said, I think it was like last week, he was like all like, you know, video meetings will be like in VR in the next like three years. And I want to say that's crazy, but also you think about like it all it took was a pandemic for all of us to go to like working remotely, working on Zoom. Like I think pre-pandemic, I think about the number of Zoom calls that I did and it was like practically none ever. It was mostly just phone calls. And then that completely changed the way that we worked so fast. Yeah. Right. And so now it's not so crazy to think about maybe in three years that we're all going to be in VR. Yeah. I I think a lot of the world's already saying yes to virtual connection. Um, I think that the, the, the notion of a metaverse can be intimidating and movies like Ready Player One scare people, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of... Uh, we of, also got The Matrix coming out like next yeah. week too. Well, so yeah, like, we got, is that where we're headed? Gotta, I got to <laughs> see that one. Yeah. So there's these, there's a lot, there's a lot of pieces, books and, and movies that have, have been made around the subject. And, you know, certainly some of these things scare the public. But for me, what I'm interested in opting into is uh, the immersive entertainment experiences and the gaming experiences. I think that'd be very fun. But the world is already saying yes to virtual. And, you know, you, your team experienced this, our team experienced this. I, uh, you know, in 2019, I was big on in-person meetings. You know, I was really pushing, you know, in-person connection. And we would do a lot of our stand-ups in person and the team would have to do a lot of commuting all around Houston. And we have people on, we don't, I mean, we have people all across the country now. We keep all of our resources and team on shore, but specifically the folks that are in Houston, it's a lot of commuting. We have people mm -hmm. from way outside the beltway coming in. And instead of forcing the team to do that, I mean, now that we're all open to virtual connection, uh, we really enjoy uh, skipping the commute. We really enjoy uh, the uh, virtual connection and the speed at which we're able to get things done as we largely work from home. Mm -hmm. So, we, I mean, our team uh, is now remote first and we enjoy that. And um, we're, we'd like to, <laughs> to certainly continue that work culture. And lots of companies agree and lots of companies are shifting to remote first, even if historically they'd been an in-person only. Um, so it, it's the pandemic has changed the way we work as a company changed the world and uh, i think it's helped accelerate a move to um, remote work in the form of a metaverse mm -hmm. whether or not you know we'll be on a microsoft teams metaverse big question mark there right or a meta uh, virtual world uh, but some form of virtual work with uh, a metaverse component is very interesting for us especially if it's atop a, a decentralized protocol yeah right? especially if it's a uh, blockchain based uh, censorship resistant world. So it's funny to think about Meta, which was formerly Facebook's parent company. I guess, well, it's still the parent company, but it's yeah. just renamed. Um, the contrast of like what that means at the core versus, so we've talked about a lot of buzzwords, right? So now we're talking about also Web3, yeah. right? And really the, the core definition of web three is you look at things like the internet itself, right? And it's so controlled by 
ISBs and, 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 you know, telecom providers and then the big social media guys, like those guys really control the internet for the most part. Right. Whereas web three, it's, you're taking that and you're decentralizing it, all these protocols. And then with these various forms of cryptocurrencies or whatever you want to call them, you're also able to like own a portion of the protocol. Right. And so you're decentralizing that power. Whereas Facebook's kind of switched to, Hey, now we're meta. It's like, it's still very much web two, but trying to kind of bring that into web three, because they're still controlling that. And it's not, you're not pushing that power down to the people, which is like the very core of like what web three is all about. Yeah. From listening to the meta keynote, meta seems to be positioning itself more as a a fabric of web two than a full on web three product. And what I mean by a fabric is that they're, they're an entity that's helping glue a lot of important pieces together for a more immersive experience. But at the end of the day, Meta is still extremely centralized corporation. Um, so what what's different about Web3 and, and some of the crypto aspects there? If, if Web1 was, okay, now you can look at a screen and access a website. And Web2 was, well, now you can access you know, the mobile wave and you can access the internet on your phone and access any of these platforms or networks, uh, like some of the social media giants and big tech. Well, then Web3 to me is very fluid, open, protocol agnostic, access, immersive experience on the internet. So, you know, I don't, with what, in a, in a Web3 world, I don't think I'm going to care what social media app I'm on. I'm able to interchangeably move between all these protocols in a fluid way. And so there's some projects that, um, are focused on interoperability between protocols that we've done a lot of research on and that we're very interested in. Um, and so these are blockchain products that, uh, and protocols that allow you to move between blockchains fluidly. And that's, mm. that's very exciting for Web3 uh, as you want to move value or information or data between a blockchain, say a Bitcoin, to an Ethereum, to another layer one that you know, maybe hasn't even started yet, but will matter. Um, that's, that's really exciting to me. It's this fluid movement of data and information across chains. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of pondering this thought based on something I just said with the, so much power is so concentrated on those who control the internet, right? so you're still paying your internet bill every single month. I pay like hundred dollars a month to Xfinity, Comcast or whatever it may be. And that power is concentrated by so few companies in this whole web three conversation is there anybody who's really thinking about decentralizing almost like either the internet or like maybe an entirely new internet to where now you can own a piece of that in the same way that we just talked about by completely circumnavigating these four major players essentially that we have in the u.s or however many it is yeah so there's there's projects that uh consider themselves really the backbone of web three infrastructure not in terms of interoperability but in terms of providing internet yeah uh, and we haven't completed our diligence on these projects so i'm not going to disclose the names because I'm very careful with what mm-hmm. i endorse promote um, but there's projects that are, are helping turn uh, radio frequency into uh, things that you could you know connect to with your mobile phone yeah. and that's very interesting especially if you leave, live in remote parts of the world with a lot of people exploring uh, different uh, properties that they want to live at in, in the crypto industry and as they prepare for a potential downturn in the market or they're locking in profits. Uh, if you move to Puerto Rico, for example, your internet is not going to be as good, at least yeah. especially right out of the gate. Um, and, and there's a lot of places you say this that we, we take for granted how good we have it here in the States sometimes. Um, so there's projects that are helping build new internet infrastructure for Web3. and and that's really interesting that you could you could buy some hardware for a reasonable price and kind of be your own ISP atop a decentralized protocol. And uh, that, that, that has a lot of uh, obvious applications to just your quality of life. Yeah. Uh, but it, it also underpins this, this movement of Web3. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to decentralize that power. And at the same time, it's like internet is like so important now to our daily lives that it's like it borders on being a utility. Right. And then it begs the question is like, is the right to internet like one of our 
Is it an inalienable right? Is yeah, it a human yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it, it just seems like because th- that's the way that we interact and that's the yeah. way that it's like you're expected to, you know, pay bills on the internet and you're expected to to have access to email and you're expected, but yeah. you don't get access to that unless you're paying for it. As a digital native, right? I, yeah. We grew up with the internet um, and if it feels as essential to business operations as water and air. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Like we could not do what we do without the internet. And so if like, think about that, think about that from like a risk standpoint, if one of the ISPs came down, we think about this for energy all the time um, of, of, you know, putting out, you know, pro oil and gas tweets and stuff sometimes that get absolutely suppressed, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be on LinkedIn. And you think about the deplatforming of Trump, you know, think about the leader of the free world can get completely deplatformed and what that means to them and how much power is controlled by like tech companies you know, it's wild to think about what does that mean over the next few years? Yeah. Censorship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't agree with a lot of things I see on the internet, but I agree with people's right to express yeah. their freedom of speech. And uh, my personal kind of principle is as long as you're not hurting other people. Yeah. Right. Freedom of speech. Yeah. Right. Um, now, if, if you're doing something malicious and that's where, you, you know, you lose my vote of confidence. Mm-hmm. But uh, censorship resistance is something that's inherent to the most successful blockchain in the world, that's Bitcoin. Um, and so there's other protocols that certainly have earned our confidence um, that have different use cases and uh, provide the decentralization and then in turn the censorship resistance of some of these new networks. And so uh, that you could see these social platforms develop around some of these Web3 protocols um, that that could rival some of the tech giants. It's it's an interesting thing that could play out, and we're watching it very closely. Yeah, it's super interesting time. Just uh, I, I feel like we've we're so blessed to be born during this time to kind of see this absolutely crazy evolution of technology. From you know me starting off with like one no phone, and as a kid getting like a <laughs> you know like a a Nokia phone with snakes, sliders and the flip cool phones, yeah, and then snakes still. Then you the get into the iPhones, yeah. and you get to we're seeing the evolution of like MP3 players, right? Have yeah. like the original iPad or iPod, and, and the, the phones and tablets and everything that has yeah. grown into now. It's like wild that you just literally have the entire world at your fingertips. You've got a computer in your hands, you know. And I yeah. see it with my kids, uh, especially that my oldest is like three and a half, and like the things that he's learned through like YouTube kids and some of the other apps and stuff that he plays, he is like at the level of what I would expect like a five or six year old to be at. He doesn't really consume any of this like stupid mind numbing content. It's like all purely educational. The kid's like a sponge. And so it's like weird from, for me as a parent, it's like how much do I let him, you know, be on screens, but at the same time I'm seeing him like outperform, you know, his, his kind of age group. Yeah. It's weird. It's like really weird. Yeah. I mean, that, that resonates with me in the sense that, uh, you know, I had limited screen time when I was growing up as part of the parenting. So yeah. Where do you draw the line? Especially yeah. if it's uh, an effective tool. Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, this was, uh, had nothing to do with what we normally talk about, <laughs> but I loved it. It was like, like I said, I think this was like very much like a Joe Rogan episode of just diving deep into the world of, you know, blockchain, crypto and NFTs and, and Web3 and metaverse. And like, this is probably like, I'm sure a lot of people will like know about some of these things, but I'm glad we kind of were able to like dive into some of these topics and yeah, fun. just kind of explore the way that the world's going. Just because I think that a lot of these buzzwords are talked about so much now on, you know, different publications, people seeing them on social media, but maybe don't really know what that, what that means. Um, so I think this was, this was a lot of fun. And yeah. so yeah, so obviously if, if you guys are listening and you know you're you're wanting to kind of get into the the crypto investing space and you want to educate yourself, uh, these guys are doing the Lord's work out there. Um, so what's the website? CryptoEQ.io. Yeah. CryptoEQ.io. And if you use the promotional code DW for the digital wildcatters audience, you get a discount today. Cool. Awesome guys. Go check that out. Uh, we'll get back to our normally uh, our normal show next <laughs> week. Thanks for joining us.